This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears. I'm Stephen Cook, writer for Halifax news site localexpress.ca. And I'm Karsten Knox, film blogger at Flaw in the Iris, part of the halifaxbloggers.ca. And what we do every week is take a look at a current film that's new to theaters and then look at some older films that might relate to it tangentially and maybe give you a little more insight into the subject at hand. Today we're talking about multiple Academy Award nominee, 19 more than any actor in history, Meryl Streep. She's won three times for supporting role in Kramer vs. Kramer and Best Actress in Sophie's Choice and in The Iron Lady. Oh, and she also won eight Golden Globes, a couple of Emmys, and at least one Tony. Yeah, so I mean, if you think that awards actually mean anything, I guess that's pretty impressive. I guess it is, but you know, (laughs) after you have so many of them, I wonder, maybe it doesn't mean that much anymore. I I think they're pretty well deserved. Yeah. (laughs) I think her track record is is pretty consistently proven. So yeah, we are talking about Meryl Streep today because she was in a new film that just came out that we we both went to see, Florence Foster Jenkins. Stephen, what did you make of Florence Foster Jenkins? Well, I went into this with a personal uh, affinity for this story, Uh, of course, Florence Foster Jenkins. I read about her years ago. I think it was as a kid in one of those, uh, the Book of Lists. Do you ever remember these? There was the People's Almanac and the Book of Lists. There were these group of writers that would compile these lists of crazy things. Uh, you know, sort of like a Guinness Book of World Records, but with a little more depth and humor, um, you know, and then a little sexy chapter on some sexy subjects. But, uh, of course, there's also an entertainment chapter, and they list, you know, certain, like, the top box office movies or whatever the top movies in the sight and sound polls were all this kind of stuff but one of the one of the lists that really interests me was the the strangest performers of all time oh yeah <laughs> and uh these would be thing like uh things like the the elephant man you know who's paraded out for people back in the victorian age and later immortalized uh on film and on stage and uh le petomaine who was able to uh use uh flatulence in a musical <laughs> I've, I've heard about Le Pen. Yeah. And, uh, and, yeah. and on that list was Florence Foster Jenkins, who is uh, famous for being the world's worst opera singer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yet uh, she was super popular, at least based on what I've heard from this film and in a, in a general way. Uh, yeah, well. She, she certainly had an found an audience with her, her limited abilities. It was kind of the dawn of so bad it's good uh, culture that, you know, later, you know, transferred to film with uh, Ed Wood Jr.'s uh, oeuvre and, and uh, you know, continued into the era of mystery science theater and, and so on. Um, so Florence Foster Jenkins was kind of a pioneer in that regard. She was a, a society matron in New York City who loved opera, loved spreading uh, the love of music. Unfortunately, she had a tin ear and couldn't carry a note to save her life. And uh, I've heard some of the recordings of her. And in fact, at the end of the film, you do hear some of the original uh, recordings of Florence Foster Jenkins over the credits. And... Uh, she was uh, pretty bad. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the hissy sound of an old gramophone doesn't quite cover up right. uh, her mistakes. Uh, I think the film does exaggerate that a little bit. A little uh, bit. But, but I think part of the achievement, Street plays Jenkins, of course. Yes. Uh, and part of her achievement, I think, we've all seen the recent Streep oeuvre where she has definitely been taking more roles where she sings. And she's proven to have a pretty terrific voice from Mamma Mia, Into the Woods... And, uh, and in fact, by going back to watch some of her older stuff, I'm realizing that she's actually sang in films 
a great deal, more than I would have expected in in Silkwood. And yeah. there's that great scene in in Ironweed where she is just she sings up a storm, and it's quite quite wonderful. Uh, but uh, he's my pal. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> such which a great we'll, scene. We'll we'll talk a little bit about, but but uh, yeah, she sings really poorly to the. Uh, I mean, it's it's. And we're we're really encouraged to laugh at her, I think, to some degree. But that's a that's a funny balancing act that this film this film does, which is that that uh, she is a little ridiculous, but she always is, she isn't a joke. She's she's a, a character that I think that there's a lot of, we have a lot of affection for as we go through the film. Yeah, you, you appreciate her chutzpah, I guess, uh, and her. Uh her desire to to entertain and, and and when she plays Carnegie Hall to an audience of mostly sailors um and then there's a little conflict in the audience as to whether they should be appreciating it or deriding it and uh and it kind of spills out onto the stage a little bit um yeah i don't i don't know how much of that actual um kind of derision reached her if how great her self delusion was in real life but uh you know you know interestingly enough uh her name popped up uh, in the wake of the death of David Bowie, of all people. Um, I saw a, a read posting of an article where Bowie listed some of the favorite records in his collection. And one of them was a Florence Foster Jenkins uh, record. And I, I guess it just that, you know, the, the, the amateur who feels like they're a star, I guess, uh, touched a nerve with him, I suppose. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he, he has a noted love uh, or had a noted love for, for offbeat performers, including the Elephant Man, who he played on the stage, I think, on Broadway before there was ever a film version of it. So, uh, you know, it's kind of nice to see that kind of appreciation that, that, that you know, a gifted artist like David Bowie, who, who operates on all levels, could, could see the charm in her performance and and her desire to to entertain yeah no i i agree and i i found the film to be very charming it was informative i i learned a lot about her that i didn't know and i and i really enjoyed the characters that are arrayed around her especially uh the, her husband saint Clair, who is played by hugh grant who i think is terrific in the film he he may be my it's sort of my favorite character in the film in some ways and and he certainly feels at least for part of the film, he feels sort of like the lead because he's the one who's orchestrating everything. He's protecting his wife while he has a secret life uh, where he has a relation to a mistress uh, played by Rebecca Ferguson. And uh, he's the one who who arranges uh, the music lessons and protects uh, Florence from herself, basically. Uh, and, and he also uh, arranges to have her to have a pianist, the delightfully named Cosme McMoon, played by <laughs> Simon Helberg, who people will recognize from Big Bang Theory. Uh, it's This is a, a charming film, uh, one that I, I think is a little bit light, like we're not really in heavy territory here, though it does get a little mawkish towards the end that I, I didn't quite enjoy the ending as much as I enjoyed the rest of the film. But but overall, I thought it was a, a pretty a pretty good time at the cinema and uh, and another another transformative role before we I think I mean I think people are pretty familiar with Meryl Streep, but it's it is amazes me how she is able to make little changes in her voice and with hair and makeup and be completely different from film to film. And she's still doing it. If I think about this film versus her film from last summer, which was Ricky and the Flash, how <laughs> different are those characters? Even even physically, it feels like she's changed her body in order to play these different roles. Yeah, well, that's, of course, that is a Streep's appeal, and we'll talk about that in, in, uh, in, in later in the episode. But uh, she really does immerse herself in the character, as is her trademark. Uh, you know, she's... 
but she she never like in life she never seems to come off as as a method actor like she she finds she always has a natural approach it never feels mannered it never really feels uh you know that uh, you know she tries to find the human core of, of her characters and I, you know after you know what 40 years in the biz or something like that i think i think uh you know that has served her well over the course of her career. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree. I think, I think the method, although you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the method feels very much like something guys do. Like it's something. If there's a masculine quality to the method, if with a capital T, capital M, uh, and and I think that, and I've read a little bit about her process, and she doesn't have one thing that she does every time she comes to a role. Hmm. She she has a number of different things that she tries to do to get into character, and uh, and I I, I like that. I like that about her that you don't feel like and it, I think it means that every time you see her you're in for a surprise in terms of what she brings to the role now now uh, she was heavy in theater in the 70s in New York City and, and then she started to move into film she was she's originally from New Jersey which I didn't know <laughs> um, but she went to Vassar and when she went to Yale and uh, and she was involved with uh, with John Cazale Cazale yeah before his death in the late 70s and he she made the deer hunter with him uh, mostly because she wanted to be on set with him I gather uh, she was quite good in that and she's great in Woody Allen's Manhattan as just you know like a three scene role as his ex-wife who writes a tell-all book about their relationship uh, now she got her first Academy Award nomination uh, which she won for, I guess, for Kramer versus Kramer. Now, I'm not much of a fan of the film, but I can recognize why it was so potent at the time and why she was recognized for it. She's she's terrific. I mean, it's it's hard to find a bad role. I mean, she's been in some bad films. You can't. They're not all going to be winners. But no. but she is she is reliably excellent in pretty much everything she does. Yeah, I saw Kramer versus Kramer shortly after it came out, actually on an airplane. Uh, so I don't know. I should probably go back and rewatch it. I probably missed something in the the edited for uh, airplane audiences uh, version that I saw uh, as a kid. But even then, I was kind of struck by the, the very sort of naturalistic approach that she had. I mean, obviously, she's not playing a grand character. She's playing a, a woman who's leaving her husband and, um, you know, a, a very independent, very modern woman who just... Uh, you know, wants what's best for herself out of the situation. And, uh, but, you know, even that in movies about divorce, that was a pretty bold thing at the time. It yeah. wasn't uh, something that people were used to see. I mean, divorce is still kind of an ugly word uh, in in those days. Uh, you know, maybe it is still is in some ways, but, but that was a real sort of modern, uh, realistic look at it that hadn't been seen in movies in a while. And that's why that film felt so fresh at the time. Yeah, now we watched The French Lieutenant's Woman, which was one I remembered sort of foggily from my youth, and I hadn't seen it in a lot of years. And wow, was that a great discovery to rewatch that film. Uh, it's based on the John Fowles novel, and it does something that I haven't seen very much in films in a general way, in that uh, she and Jeremy Irons play dual roles, uh, and it's set up from the get-go. There's a film within a film, a Victorian story of a woman living in a small town in Dorset who is the town pariah because she had a perceived affair with a married Frenchman who was visiting, and now she spends her time standing out in the pier staring into the sea, and Irons plays a scientist who's examining the undercliff who crosses paths with her repeatedly while at the same time he is engaged to the daughter of an industrialist. Now, we spend fully 75% of the time 
in the film within the film in this Victorian age, while occasionally checking in on the actors playing the parts who are also having an affair while they make the film. And I, I love this sort of, I mean, for this, I believe this came out in 1981. I love this kind of meta postmodern film before postmodern was anything that anyone really talked about. It's, it is an absolute pleasure, this movie. It, it really is. And, you know, the, the whole dual modern uh, and uh, olden time storylines, it's not hard to follow at all. And, and the way they kind of comment back and forth on each other is, is pretty remarkable. And it's a device that holds up really well today. I, I was wondering how dated the film would seem. But, but the, you know, in the modern times, they, they really try to keep the references and uh, down to a dull roar and and uh they everybody still dresses in a way that feels very up to date and that they're very smart about how the, how they put this all together um and it was a, it was a groundbreaking film in a lot of ways i mean and also a key early roles for for street that you know finally she had a, a leading role because kramer versus kramer i think was more of a supporting role she kind That's of true. ducks out and it's more about dustin hoffman and the sun to a large degree, but uh, but but here she really gets to to show her stuff in terms of you know her first big accent role because of course she became known as the queen of accents, and uh, and and Irons of course was was still a pretty fresh face as far as movies went and uh, you know considering how strong their careers are to this day, it's it's a pretty remarkable uh, film to go back and look at and see how far they've come but how strong they were from the outset. Yeah, absolutely, and it's a beautiful looking film. Uh, yeah, I recommend anyone who's interested in her work to go and check it out. Now, now, did you get a chance to s- revisit uh, Sophie's Choice? I did not. I kind of did a little Reader's Digest <laughs> take on it, and uh, I keep forgetting Peter McNichols in the darn thing. You know, I just I think of him as the bad guy in Ghostbusters too. <laughs> I, and I always done a lot of other things, but for some reason, whenever I think of Peter McNichol, I always think of him with that dreadful weird Eastern European accent that he adopts. So, yeah. So it, it's, you know, it's it's weird to see him as part of this triangle with Kevin Klein. Well, he has maybe the worst character name in, in cinema history, Stingo, right? <laughs> yeah. He's And it's, it's strange. I mean, this is a film I've seen, and, and I certainly remember it well enough to know that it's a, it's a bit of a struggle in terms of, like, it's a very bleak and intense drama about a woman who is a Polish woman who is a Holocaust survivor, and she becomes involved in, with Kevin Kleins. He's an, he's an emotionally unbalanced intellectual. They're living in New York, uh, and uh, she... And then there's this, this other character, this other writer, his name is Stingo, who comes in, and there's a bit of a, of a love triangle going on there. Um, and it's... It's a. It is a difficult film. I maybe I didn't. Re, I didn't go back to watch it again either because I. Uh, well, I, I just feel like it. I mean, it's. I recognize it's a, an amazing performance, but it's a hard one to sit through. Uh, and I, I. I recommend anyone who hasn't seen it should see it. But it's. It's a tough one. I, I think. I think. But I think the. I don't want to say too much more about it because so the. The revelation of the. Backstory. Sophie's backstory is is a lot of where that that incredible grief comes from. Uh, but her, she she speaks apparently in real life. Uh, Streep speaks Italian, and in the film speaks both Polish and German. I can't I can't tr- say my Polish and German is really not good <laughs> enough to say whether or not her accent is great. But holy cow, uh, you know her. It's another. It's a total transformation. I think people were just kind of floored by it at the time. Yeah, to to go from. Uh I mean, we had three, three row, you know, we had a very modern, up-to-date woman in Kramer, and then we have the, the, you know, all of a sudden she's 
doing the British thing fairly flawlessly in French Lieutenant's Woman. And then Sophie's Choice was a whole other universe in terms of a role. I, I feel like the film may not have aged as well as French Lieutenant's Woman. Um, just, it just look, even though it's another period piece, it has a kind of a dated look about it. There's almost like a Vaseline on the lens kind of feel about it. I, I, I don't know. It just, uh, and again, I, I just kind of, uh, breeze through it Cole's notes style, but, uh, you know, I, I want to dive back into it and experience it in full, but it, it just, it felt a bit, uh, not stale because the performances are very strong. I don't know how Peter McNichol expects to compete with in his prime Kevin Klein, but uh, so, who doesn't I, do a lot of dramatic roles? So that's another interesting thing to y- see him. Yeah. In. So you know, there's a lot to like about it, but I I would uh, temper your expectations based on the reputation of the film. <laughs> yeah. Now, in the middle of that, uh, Streep also did a movie with Roy Scheider. Uh, called Still the Night, which uh, I don't know that I'd really recommend to people, but it's a uh, it's kind of um, a Hitchcock pastiche where where uh, it it's like she plays the icy blonde, and uh, it's yeah I, I don't want to say too much about it uh, because I can't really I can't really recommend it other than to say that that. Uh, that maybe for completists, but uh, but yeah, it's it was amazing the variety of work that she was doing, and she still had, I think, arguably some. Of, she still has some of her best work ahead of her uh, going into the the late eighties. So Karen Silkwood was Meryl Streep's first non-fictional character, and it's something she's done much more often since then with roles in Julie and Julia and The Iron Lady and Suffragette and, and of course, Florence Foster Jenkins. Uh, Now, Silkwood was directed by Mike Nichols, came out in 1983, and she plays a very flawed but fascinating character, a woman who works in an Oklahoma plutonium rod factory who gets involved with the union when she gets concerned about the health and safety of herself and her colleagues, it makes her actually very unpopular with her coworkers who are worried about losing their jobs due to the union meddling, and with the management, of course, who are trying to get away with stuff on the sly. Uh, Cher and Kurt Russell also star in the film, and both are terrific. Uh, and here, I think, is where I really started to appreciate the different kinds of things Streep can do. It's not just about accents. You know, it's about the way she uses her voice. She actually, I think, changes her voice or or modulates it in a way to suit the character. Uh, and, of course, here, the, the wardrobe and the body type, and she's, she's got this really, like, almost a, a mullet kind of hairstyle. Uh, and, and a, yeah, and as I mentioned earlier, she sings Amazing Grace in the film, and it, it becomes quite a lovely note uh, of her, her singing that song. Um, both is sort of in the first act, and then again we hear it again towards the end. But it was uh, it was the kind of movie that I mean, <laughs> this is I know I overuse this that you just don't see made very often anymore about these kinds of an issue movie about this kind of issue about workers' rights and about uh, um, you know corporate malfeasance that is not something we get to see very often in, in cinemas anymore. Yeah, it sort of follows in the wake of, well, All the President's Men is a big one, of course, from the 70s, and you think of Norma Ray, which came along not after, and it's kind of in that vein. We actually see a little bit of that in, in Ironweed in a sort of flashback form, not as a major story point, but as kind of an accent. Um, and uh, Silkwood is is, uh, is still pretty powerful stuff today. Uh, I attribute a lot of that to Mike Nichols just because he's such a good director. Yeah. And uh, for some reason, I, I I started watching this and I'd totally forgotten it was a Nichols film. You know, I I, I think of, uh, 
you know, a lot of his early work and, and maybe some, maybe not so great later films. And uh, I forgot this is kind of right smack dab in the middle. And, uh, you know, he's so good with actors and just getting them to relax and, and be in the moment. And, uh, you know, here he's, he's clearly at the top of his powers. And this film, I, again, this is not a film that has aged a day, I don't think. I mean, you know, because there's still concerns about safety in the workplace and, and, and the whole nuclear power industry and, and the importance of unions versus the effectiveness of unions and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think all the issues that this film raises are still uh, pretty key and, and, and pretty important. So it, it's, it's a film that is definitely worth seeing and, and really has lost none of its power as far as I can see. And she worked again with Nichols uh, a few years later. She had had the big hit with Out of Africa, but she rejoined Nichols for Heartburn, which is a Hollywood divorce drama. It's written by Nora Ephron, and uh, I recently rewatched Heartburn, and I I, uh, I found it actually quite lovely. It it's it's got the structure, the mood of a romantic comedy, but it's not a comedy. It's a it's a drama about divorce. Now, it's not one of those sort of intense divorce dramas like Kramer vs. Kramer. It's it's a little more whimsical, as Efren was. You know, was that was kind of her style. Uh, now, just, and it has this recurrence of this Carly Simon track coming around again, which <laughs> yes, you know you can take her, you can take her leave, I guess. But um, I found it to be an honest and a frequently hilarious look at an imperfect marriage where one of the partners is a philanderer. That's Jack Nicholson. Uh, it's I think it's it's a more sophisticated kind of romantic comedy, I guess, if you really had to to put it in a particular genre. And it also stars; it has a great role for Catherine O'Hara as a, a sort of a gossipy pal of the of the couple who is always up on what's happening. And it's it's set actually in Washington and amongst the uh, journalists and media there. And uh, and yeah, it's 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 a real charmer. Is uh, now I have not seen Heartburn, uh, and I, I feel remiss because I, I, the fact that I've missed out on a Jack Nicholson performance seems to pain me. Um, it, are they playing? Are they? Do they go by their real names, or is this kind of a fictional story based on? It's fictional, yeah, because the, it's based on Nora Ephron's marriage with Carl Bernstein, right? Who, Speaking of, course, of all the president's men, all the president's men, yeah, uh, and they do. It's all fictionalized, but uh, clearly. You know, there, it has the tang of autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's it's pretty great. I, I liked it. There are some some like that song that that place it in the '80s, but it it also feels it doesn't it doesn't feel dated particularly. Uh, now, the second movie that that Streep did with Jack Nicholson was Ironweed. This is from Hector Babenko. It's it came out in 1987. It's a very bleak drama that feels almost like a play, a Chekhov play or something. It's set in Albany in 1938, and it tell, tells the tales of the drunks and the bums. With Nicholson's Francis Phelan as the charismatic, could have been a contender kind of guy, if he wasn't an alcoholic who dropped his baby on the floor 22 years previous. Street plays Helen, someone who also might have been a, a high-class lady at one point. Uh, and it, I found it to be a powerful film, but speaking of, of hard viewing, boy, this one was a tough one to sit through. These people's lives are so difficult, and the, the film does not steer clear of any of that, that ugliness. Uh, though there is that moment where Streep sings right uh, right in the early in the first hour or so uh, in this bar and she sings he's my pal and uh, <laughs> it was it's an amazing amazing moment uh, yeah yeah really really I'm glad I rewatched it 
Yeah, me too. It's you really can't take your eyes off of either uh, Street or Nicholson. And my memories for this were pretty faint. I, I, I think the last time I watched it was back in the Laserdisc days of the the mid early '90s thereabouts. So so it was really good to get a refresher on this. Plus, uh, I hadn't read any William Kennedy, who wrote the uh, Pulitzer Prize winning novel that uh, the movie's based on. Uh, I've since read a bit more of his stuff, so I can get a feel for uh, how this fits into kind of a saga of the, the, the Phelan family uh, of upstate New York. And, and this is just one installment. It goes on to include the, the, the Cuban Revolution in his most uh, recent uh, installment, uh, Chango's Beads or uh, Two-Tone uh, two tone shoes, I think, is, is what it's called. Um, but it also goes into professional baseball. There's a hint of that in, in Ironweed. But the, there's also, I think, Billy Phelan. I think it's uh, Nicholson's character's son goes on to be a ball player. I think. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, there's hints of that uh, in, in this book. And uh, it's it's this real. Uh, it's all based on his own family and the people that he knew growing up in in Albany in the around the Depression, before and after that, and into the. Uh, into the Second World War in the in the fifties, uh, and the the film has such a strong sense of place and time. It's one of the better recreations of a period that I've seen in a film. I mean, just Albany in the the late nineteen thirties, the Depression still has a has a grip on the town, and you get that feeling uh, throughout the film. And they um, they shot on location. A lot of those scenes are yeah. shot. The exteriors are shot in Albany and in small towns in the region. Yeah, because Albany hasn't really. I mean, it's the state capital of New York. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of that uh, city has not changed very much since that period. And having visited the city itself, uh, I can attest to the, the, that how much of it has an old-timey feel. It was perfect uh, that they were able to to shoot so much of it uh, in the city where it takes place. And uh, and Nicholson and, and Streep don't go wrong anywhere in this film. And most of, most of the cast is, is truly great. Tom uh, Waits is really terrific. Yeah, it's one of the better Tom Waits. Sometimes Tom Waits can be a, a little over the top or a little mannered. Uh, I started thinking of uh, one from the heart. His, uh, the uh, Coppola musical slash non-musical that he's in and also uh, wrote the songs for, uh, or his Renfield in Coppola's Dracula, <laughs> which yeah. is perfectly suits the material. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I kind of, I almost wish there was more of him in that film and less Keanu. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but such is not the case. But, uh, you know, it, he, he's perfect for the, the role of a, of a guy who's kind of teetering on the, the edge of... Uh, of sanity in uh, in the depression, and of course, so is so is Streep. They don't really go into it too much, but you know, you start to suspect that perhaps she's battling schizophrenia, which is a, you know uh, a condition no one knew how to deal with in those days. Yeah. You just kind of just write her off as a drunk, maybe. And but but there's obviously a lot more going on there. And and so she, you know, as an actor, she has to deal with a lot. You know, it's like how do you play a schizophrenic without saying you're schizophrenic, and mm-hmm. and, uh, and all this, and mix it in with alcoholism and and this kind of. Drifter life, yeah, undiagnosed illnesses. She has pain. She clearly has some pain that she's she's managing uh, in the midst of it. She's self medicating, as we would call (laughs) it these days. Which at the time, again, you know, there was no word for that to keep Uh, the keep the demons at bay. Yeah, she is. uh, I mean, she disappears for chunks of the movie, so it made me feel like she was. uh, It was a supporting role, but in fact, she was nominated again for best actress for this one. Uh, She lost to Cher who won for Moonstruck. Though, interesting, the Cher's acceptance speech at the Oscars is on YouTube. I actually looked at it, and she thanked her friend, Mary Louise Streep, uh, <laughs> in her speech, basically saying that they did their first, her first movie together, which was Silkwood. And, uh, and so she, uh, she thanked her for that. And I thought that was really, really sweet. And, and, uh, it's, you know, and I think Cher is, is an underappreciated, though she has won an Oscar uh, actor, and it's just that most people think of her as the 
the singer, and uh, she's really good in the right role. Uh, now, you saw Cry in the Dark, which is, I gather, otherwise known as Evil Angels. This is a title I'd never realized. It had two titles, yeah. depending on where it opened in in, uh, in in the world. But I haven't seen Cry in the Dark. What's, what's it like? Well, oddly enough, I was watching it with my partner, Jordana, and she's like, this seems really familiar, but I've never seen this movie, Cry in the Dark. And then I I, I looked it up, and, and actually, I think on IMDb, it came up as Evil Angels for some reason. Because it's based on a book called Evil Angels okay. about the case of, uh, of this family whose uh, baby was, in fact, seized by dingoes. And, uh, and that famous catchphrase. Yes, exactly. And, and <laughs> this film sort of became the point at which people kind of, you know, Meryl Streep had reached such a point of prominence as, as the preeminent American film actor, uh, female, that uh, people felt this was a point at which they could start kind of making fun of her because she was... You know, she'd done British accents and European accents, and somehow the Australian accent seemed to be the one that seemed off to people. Uh, you know, and the the whole, you know, the dangos ate my baby. You know, it just, anyway, I'm not going to attempt it. But uh, I think you just did. Maybe I, I did bit. attempt it. <laughs> attempt being the, the, the important word. Um, uh, you know, felt the point where, where people could kind of make fun of her in a way for, for being the accent queen. And, and also, she wears kind of a, a very bad kind of bowl cut wig in this film but you know i guess it's all based on on the uh you know the true character of uh of, of lindy i think cunningham i think it was the name i've forgotten it off the top of my head but but um uh you know the, she tried to be as true to the character as possible and in fact once you get past the one scene where the baby vanishes and and she's crying out in in uh, panic and uh, you know for the most part it's it's tamped down. There's there's right. one scene where she gets quite frustrated, and in fact it's truly terrifying. The, the scene where where the baby disappears and you just see a dingo running off into the bush and you don't r- really have a clear idea of what happened. And uh, neither did a lot of people because uh, the film kind of goes into the media hysteria around the case and the rumors that circulated and and. You know, before it actually gets to the truth of what happened, which is in fact, uh, you know, what Lindy said happened, happened. But she actually ended up getting convicted um, and spending a couple of years in in prison as a result of it before being exonerated when more evidence came to light. Um, and it's, you know, it's it's another fine street performance. She also has a great cast, and you know, her husband's played by Sam Neill, who I can watch in just about anything. Although here he's blonde, which is kind of weird. He's got very light blonde hair, which is not what I usually think of with Sam Neill. We should do a, a next time he's in a movie. We should do a podcast about Sam Neill. He's had a terrific uh, career, and I'd be happy to go back and watch. Oh, of his fantastic actor! Yeah. I, you know, I've been a fan since I saw Riley Ace of Spies. <laughs> I don't on, even, on I don't PBS. Know that one. It's a, I, I have the DVD set for it. It's a, he played. Um, uh, a British spy who was actually had some Russian heritage during the First World War, and uh, his dealings with with arms dealers who were you know it it kind of looks at you know the the fact that the the First World War was you know a lot of arms dealers were kind of making it happen through these this empire building just to kind of sell weapons you know kind of the 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 birth of the industrial war complex and then it leads into the Russian Revolution and his kind of weird behind the scenes role and all of that happening and getting caught up in you know, communist hysteria in Russia. So it's very intriguing. I think it was like six or eight parts or something like that. And he's very good in, in a very early role. Um, but yeah, you know, there's, there's so many great films of his. Uh, I think the first time, time I remember seeing him was was the grown-up version of Damien uh, from The Omen. <laughs> yes. He was like Omen in 3. the th- third one, yeah. 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 Where he winds up in the White House, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah. So anyway, yeah, I, we're getting off We're, we're getting, getting off a little topic. off topic, but, but, but certainly... Uh, so would you recommend Cry in, the, Cry in the Dark? I definitely recommend it. It's it's uh, 
It's directed by uh, Fred Shapizi, I think is, is how it's pronounced, a fine Australian director. Yeah, he directed uh, Russia House, one of my favorite Russia films. House, uh, mm-hmm. Coca-Cola Kid, a uh, fine uh, Eric Roberts uh, performance, I believe, where he plays a Coke executive who comes to Australia to shake things up in the Down Under branch. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of some other films. Russia House is a good one to, to, to come to mind. And, uh, it, you know, it... It really has the tension of that moment, but then uh, really handles the whole media circus that surrounds this case and the way it became one of the most uh, controversial trials and cases in, in Australian history. And uh, I, I loved how it handles that. And again, it's a it's it's pretty realistic in its treatment of the media and how how things can kind of spiral and and uh, the the public reaction to the to the whole case. And and Streep is, is great because in fact uh, the character Lindy was uh, criticized for not being the typical grieving wife. Uh, and, and that sort of played into why people thought she was guilty because she didn't seem to be very hys- hysterical about, about losing her baby to a dingo and all this kind of stuff. And, uh, and so it does require something a little more subtle once the initial uh, fury of, of the, um, I'll say, not, not kidnapping, but abduction by dingoes uh, goes. And, and, and she's, <laughs> sorry, I'm know. sorry. It's still funny. It's I know, it is still funny. funny. I, that, that, it's I think, terrifying, I but think funny. that's part of the problem with the film is that the, the whole idea of the dingoes taking a baby just seems so ridiculous. But but again, that plays into to why uh, she wound up uh, going to trial and eventually going to prison and then eventually getting exonerated and getting a payment that took care of like a third of their legal costs. You know, she and her husband were members of a seventh day Adventist church, which also played into why people viewed them with suspicion. Um, and, uh, I thought the film handled all those elements very well. And, and she's very believable at the heart of it all. It's interesting to note that, uh, after the, uh, the one, two punch of ironweed and a cry in the dark, which are both heavy, dramatic roles that, uh, seemed to require a lot of, uh, of Meryl Streep, that she embarked on a string of comedies. Yeah. <laughs> and some, fairly, fairly light comedies. Some of them more successfully than others, I would say. She was in She-Devil and uh, Death Becomes Her, neither of which were all that great, if I can remember correctly. But she was also you, in Defending Your Life and Postcards from the Edge, which I, I liked more. You do remember correctly. Uh, <laughs> Defending Your Life was, I, I wanted to like that film. Uh, it, I think it was Bruce Willis played a uh, top um, uh, plastic surgeon. Uh, oh, you're thinking of <laughs> Death Becomes Her. Oh, the, oh, sorry. That's yes, Death yeah. Becomes Her is the directed with, by Robert Zemeckis. Yeah, with Goldie Hawn and very over the top uh, special effects. Yes, yes. And uh, I think Isabella Rossellini shows mm-hmm. up as she sure does some yeah. sort of goddess or something. Like yes, that. yes, with the power to give immortality. It's interesting to note that uh, after some fairly heavy uh, appearances in Ironweed and A Cry in the Dark that, uh, I mean, uh, Meryl Streep decided to keep busy, of course, but she decided to go for something a bit lighter in her next few films, do, do some comedy, which is not uh, something she was terribly well known for at the time. Yeah, and she had some success with them, some less so. She was in something called She-Devil, and she was in Death Becomes Her, which was <laughs> which was not a great film, where she acted op- opposite Bruce Willis and, and Goldie Hawn in a kind of a satire of, of shallow Hollywood values of, of, uh, of, you know, eternal beauty and et cetera, et cetera. But she was also in Defending Your Life and Postcards from the Edge, another Hollywood story based on the Carrie Fisher book, which uh, she was great in opposite Shirley MacLaine. Yeah, that was a terrific film. And I, those, yeah, those, those first two comedies you mentioned have uh, have not aged so well. Death Becomes Her, of course, Robert Zemeckis, 
kind of on the downward slide as a director. And unfortunately, he's he, he's he's sadly not been able to reclaim uh, whatever uh, fame he had. You know. Uh, well, he's up and down. Um, I, I would say that I like The Walk, which was a couple, last year, I think, though it didn't do very well for him. Yeah, probably his best late film. And, and She Devil was an, an adaptation, I think, of a British miniseries. Yes, that's right. That's uh, right. Co-starring Roseanne Barr, uh, who uh, I guess she she makes a deal with the the devil or something like that. To, Meryl Streep's like the super housewife of, of, of all time. I can't remember if there's like a TV show involved and, yeah. and Roseanne Barr basically wants to have what, what she has. And I guess, I guess the idea was that the, the matching of, of Roseanne and uh, Meryl would be a big cinematic event. And <laughs> it's, <laughs> I don't know that it really was. Uh, yeah. I, I saw it when it came out and I, I don't have terribly fond memories of it. I think, mm. I think whatever satire was in the original version got uh, heavily dulled yes. by the time that, um, that uh, reached the, the the screen in Hollywood, so not not one to 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 catch up with. But but postcards from the edge and defending your life are both worth revisiting, I believe. Sure. Um, and of course, postcards from the edge, uh, you know, like heartburn. It was you know based on the real life relationship between Carrie Fisher and her mom Debbie Reynolds. Uh, in in this case, we have Shirley MacLaine in the Debbie Reynolds esque role as a as a, a fading uh, star and. Um, and Meryl Streep as her up and coming writer daughter, who uh, has a lot to live up to in terms of uh, in terms of her reputation. Yeah, and it's uh, it's actually pretty pretty wonderful. Uh, I I I think that Streep has her versatility does include light comedy, and and just with the right script, it it really it really works. Yeah, I assume that she'd done more on stage than she'd done on film in that regard. And, and you know, you can't just keep doing the heavy serious roles. It's going to wear you down. And she is quite delightful in a very kind of naturalistic and, and uh, kind of almost breezy role here. Um, you know, the, the, the mother daughter dynamic is great. I'm a big Shirley MacLaine fan and, and she's terrific here. Uh, and of course, uh, again, as you mentioned uh, earlier in the show, uh, Meryl gets to sing. In fact, backed up by Blue Rodeo. Uh, <laughs> That's right. And uh, I remember I, I, I interviewed, I think it was Jim Cuddy from Blue Rodeo. I interviewed him shortly after the film came out and I was asking him about this because what is that? It was 19, 1990. So I was working in radio in those days and uh, talking about this film and the experience of being on a Hollywood soundstage and working with Meryl Streep. And uh, he had nothing but great things to say about working with her. Like she, you know, she, she was a, a fan of music in general and, and, you know, came with a, with a lot of great ideas. And, uh, I think they may have had just one rehearsal, uh, uh-huh. prior to shooting the scene, but, uh, he said it was a real treat. Oh, that's you know, great. And, and she was very down to earth and very friendly and, and, uh, knocked it out of the park in, in, in her scene where she kind of belts out a honky tonk tune. She, I don't think she's supposed to be a great singer, just kind of a, an enthusiastic one. Right. And, and I think that comes across, uh, when she takes the stage, I think it's fairly late in the film from what I remember. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's great that she sings so much cause she is really, she really has a talent for it. And of course, when she finally did Mamma Mia, uh, more, much more recently, uh, she became a big star all over again because <laughs> of that enormous success of that film. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, in the, in the mid-90s, she made The Bridges of Madison County. And this is the case of a really mediocre book making a pretty great movie. Uh, and thanks to, I think, Clint Eastwood is to be, to be credited here. Uh, I think we've talked a little bit about this film when we did our Clint Eastwood podcast. But uh, I don't think a lot of people were expecting it to be as good as it was. And certainly, 
you know, Streep gets to essay another accent, and it, she plays an Italian woman living in a small American town who has an affair with a photographer who's passing through. It's it's quite a melancholy film, uh, but I think I think it struck a chord with audiences in their 40s and their 50s. And I mean, I I it came out when I was like 25, and I still was impressed by it. Yeah, I think she may have collaborated with her Death Becomes Her co-star Isabella Rossellini on getting that accent just right. <laughs> yeah, could be. Um, but it's it's again very soft and and subtle and un- more understated, um, you know, which is what you'd expect from somebody who had been living in the states for some time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and you know, and Clint's very relaxed here. It's it's it was you know to to see him in a romance. And a, a very, I mean, in some ways, it's a very conventional romance. It's her first kind of straight up romantic film since Out of Africa, which I think had been like almost a decade before. So, um, you know, it, it was, it's nice to see her back in that kind of bailiwick, as it were. Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, she went on to other successes. Uh, I don't know if we can talk about each of them here with the time that remains, but uh, certainly she she had more nominations. I I think Adaptation might be the film from the early 2000s that, that I remember her in being, I mean, just being a great, a great uh, Charlie Kaufman story. Uh, and of course, she got a lot of attention for The Devil's Wear, Wear, Devil Wears Prada and, and Julie and Julia, which is a movie that despite my not being typically very good in the kitchen, I thought it was amazing, <laughs> amazing story, a great foodie movie and, and a great movie about a, just about the a passion for, for, for food and, and what she was able to accomplish at the time. This, this woman, uh, Julia Child, um, I, I think, um, I think the movie I really do want to talk about, though, uh, having revisited through the research for this this chat, is Doubt, uh, where the, the film, which is adapted by John Patrick Shanley from his play, where Street plays Sister Aloysius Bouvier. It's the early 60s in a school, in a Catholic school in the Bronx, and uh, it is, uh, and she plays basically the scariest nun ever. Uh, when and and the story is about uh, is about Philip Seymour Hoffman who plays a priest who she suspects is having uh, is maybe having an inappropriate relationship with what with a boy in in the school and uh, and it's about the suspicion and whether or not that is what that's actually going on and and it it very cleverly shifts your allegiance between characters uh, and it is. Uh, it is truly Amy Adams is also in in the film as the sort of innocent younger nun who is is at one point or another basically as a representative of the audience being being uh, shifted her allegiance between one character and another and it is uh, it's it's a great film about how you know it, it takes a, a serious crack at the patriarchy of the church but it's also about uh, you know you're never really sure whether or not the guilt is is truth and there is always a fair amount of doubt there and and it really it's one of those films that if you go and see it with someone i think will allow for a lot of conversation after it's over yeah i remember really being struck by this film when i saw it uh back in 2008 and uh you know it was certainly uh a great role for uh, philip seymour hoffman as well and uh you know i i'd seen the play as well years before and and it was uh a film you know just you really have to question your own values and your own uh, sense of belief uh, in the course of this film. And it, that, I think that's why it works so well, because you <laughs> have to ask yourself some, some pretty serious questions while you're watching the film and what, what do you believe happened? And, you know, based on what we know about the church and, uh, you know, and, you know, is there some wiggle room in there for, you know, 
closeness and, and actual abuse and and uh, and she of course Streep's character has to question a lot of uh, of what she goes through as well. You know, it isn't a perfect film. I think the there's a little heavy-handed imagery around the wind that comes in and shakes everything up. Uh, and and I wasn't 100% sure about the ending. There's a scene between Amy Adams and Meryl Streep at the very end where there's a bit of a revelation, which I think is great. But then there's also a character thing that, that uh, I'm not sure is entirely earned. Uh, but I will say that right smack in the middle of the film, there is an, a terrific scene between Streep and Viola Davis. Now, I've read that Davis, who had a lot of experience as an actor at this point, but had never acted opposite Streep, did like 50 pages of writing about her character, giving her character a backstory because she just wanted to be so prepared for that scene. And it is incredible. It's a masterclass of acting, the two of them talking about uh, Davis plays the mother of the boy who Streep's character thinks may be having this uh, baby being abused basically by the father, the priest. And, um, it uh, and she's basically presenting this her her feelings or her suspicions to this mother, and the mother is like, "Look, uh, the home life is is awful, and uh, if this boy is if my boy is being given some support or some love from someone who cares about him, then that's all that matters." And it's it's kind of a shocking thing to hear from from her, but she she describes the situation so so clearly and the the scene is 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 so well done that you're kind of flattened by it uh and and the film the film does a a great job of just leaving the possibilities open for for a lot of different truths uh and 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 also it it really and i'll say this just to sort of uh i mean watching it again makes me reminds me how much We've lost with Philip Seymour Hoffman no longer mm. being uh, amongst us uh, making films because he was so good. He was so good. Yeah, it, and they're so good together. There's, you know, when she's on screen with another actor, and that's the other thing. She's she's so well balanced with her fellow cast members in most of her films. Like, I mean, she has a reputation as being this grand dame of the movies. Yet, I mean, not at the expense of of her co uh, stars that she, she's always very generous with the actors she appears with. Um, uh, you know, as memorable as her performances are, I don't think she's ever trying to overshadow anybody in the film. There's probably a few examples maybe where she pitches things a little too high. August Osage County County, is a film that uh, did not work for me. No, no. I, I felt that, uh, in that film, Julia Roberts was the standout role. Uh, and performance, uh, and and Streep surprised me by being going so large with it that I felt that she, it just it it just felt too theatrical, and I didn't quite buy it. That was the one place, maybe the one role where I would say, oh, I, I don't know if I, I quite went with that. Yeah, like well, we mentioned Death Becomes Her, and and I think everybody in that film was pitched at eleven anyway, so there's not <laughs> yeah. much she could have done to to overshadow anybody in that film. Um, I was thinking about the Manchurian Candidate remake from 2004, the Jonathan Demme sure. completely unnecessary remake of, of the uh, original John Frankenheimer film. Uh, I'm not sure why that, because the original is so potent still to this day. Um, but here they, they remade it with Denzel Washington in the Frank Sinatra role and Leah Schreiber as the, the war hero who becomes the uh, sort of uh, brainwashed tool of uh, the assassins kind of thing. And, and, and of course... Uh, Meryl Streep has the unenviable role of um, 
playing the uh, Angela Lansbury character of the manipulative mom who's uh, in on the plot and and kind of you know the the real kind of puppeteer kind of working this whole conspiracy scenario and uh, you know she was better than she had any right to be in this film considering how misguided it was uh, and and of course she she goes turn you know she she goes to a great uh, deal of pains to make it her own and uh, and not remind you of the Angela Lansbury role. She's, you know, she plays her as a much more modern woman, I think, than necessarily the Angela Lansbury character was back in the the 60s version. But, um, but still, it wasn't really <laughs> the kind of thing that she needed to be doing at that point. Yeah, that's not a film I've seen. And I, I sort of, I think because I felt at the time that, oh, why are they remaking this film? Like, it, it's such a classic, even though Jonathan Demme was at the helm, even though Denzel Washington and Meryl Streep, like all these really talented performers, I couldn't quite get excited about it. And so I, I missed it then and I've, I've never caught up with it. I saw it at the, t- I mean, it's worth seeing, uh, not, and not just to draw comparisons because I think it works pretty well as a, as an efficient thriller, but um, you know, it, it doesn't have that kind of creepiness of the original just because of that maybe because of its correlation to the JFK assassination and all that kind of stuff there's really nothing for it to to latch on to uh in modern times that uh, that's of, of similar magnitude so uh you know unless they were going to do like a 9-11 tie-in or something like that uh it doesn't doesn't really have the same kind of impact and and it's it's kind of watchable but forgettable I guess yeah um now before we uh we wrap up here our our tour through the 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 deep and and imman- immense and impressive back catalog of the Streepiverse. The, the Streepiverse. <laughs> um, I did want to say just a few things about Ricky and the Flash, just to put a fine point on how she changes from role to role. Uh, now Streep is someone who it doesn't matter whether she's in a lead role or supporting role. I actually I should say I, I caught I caught a movie not long ago called The Homesman. Where it's a it's a Tommy Lee Jones film, and Streep has what I probably think is a day's work. Like she came <laughs> to set for a day, and she has one scene that she shows up in, and she's just she just glows. Like it it is it is so. Even if you had no idea who she was, I think you'd be like, "Who's that lady?" She's just so good <laughs> in it. It's a western. It's it's actually a really fine film, but uh, it just. Just further evidence to her her singular gift as uh, this chameleon performer. And Ricky and the Flash, another movie with music in the center of it that came out about a year ago because she seems to be in movies in August lately. And I guess the studios have realized, oh, there's an audience for people who in <laughs> August to go see Meryl Streep movies. Uh, and uh, she played such a different character. Basically, she's a rocker. And she is someone who is... Uh, she she's a mother who who pursued her dreams of rock and roll and has a regular gig playing in a bar in California, and uh, she's uh, she's playing with um, she's who's who's her guitar player? Uh, it's uh, it's Jesse's girl. Uh, oh, uh, Rick Springfield. Rick Springfield. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, Rick. Who was like, <laughs> who was an actor before he was. Uh... Was a performer, performer and a singer, yeah. yeah, and he's been an actor since, and he's really good at it. He's her, her her musical partner and her romantic partner in the film, and it's about her character, Ricky, or in fact, Linda, going back to Indiana and reconnecting with her family that she sort of left behind to pursue her dream, and uh, she, she acts opposite her actual daughter, Mamie Gummer, who, in fact, played her daughter back in Heartburn, so it's actually kind of cool that they are on the screen again together, and uh, it's not a film, I wouldn't call it a great film, it, it does 
doesn't really go to, I think, the places where I sort of hoped it would. I hope that there would be a little more drama, maybe a little more time with the mother-daughter. I kind of hope that they'd go somewhere, maybe have a road trip and, and, and have an experience that brought more out of it. And it was, it's, um, you know, she's, she's basically trying to, to, to make peace with the fact that her kids don't like her very much and, uh, <laughs> and haven't forgiven her for leaving them to go and, and do this rock and roll thing. And there's a wedding at the very end. And uh, it, it actually, it, there's a lot of charming moments. It's not a great film, but, it, but if you really, you really love yourself some Meryl, it's, it's kind of, I think it's kind of essential just because it's, it, it's, it's so amazing to see her play, 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 watch Ricky and the flash and then watch Florence Foster Jenkins and, <laughs> and be stunned. Yeah, I, th- I think the film was kind of a victim of its advanced uh, promotional campaign because the, the the trailers and the ads that I saw for this film did not make it look like a good movie. Like it, it they kind of screamed that this would be one to avoid. Yeah, and uh, and, and the truth is much more complex than that. Uh, written by Diablo Cody, um, you know who who does write good, strong leading roles for women. Yeah, and Dem- uh, and Jonathan Demi, and Jonathan again. Demi directing again. Now, yeah. uh, maybe he wasn't the right director for this material. I, I think. Uh, you know, I, I think of how strong young adult was in uh, in terms of a Diablo Cody character, and that uh, I don't know about Demi. I, I really haven't enjoyed a lot of his recent work, considering how strong he started, and uh, you know, right up through Silence of the Lambs and beyond. But his his later films have, have not struck me as being terribly interesting, but or appealing. But 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 here, you know, uh, Streep gets a strong character and makes the most of it. It's just it's sort of in the story department where things kind of fall behind yeah and it's great to see her with kevin klein again given their yeah. their history and sophie's choice i mean these are very different characters and they i don't think they work together uh in between those i mean we're talking 30 years of uh of uh of time but uh wow like what what a what a wonderful thing to see them together again on the screen <laughs> that wraps up our look at the career of Meryl Streep, the only actor I can think of that had a Muppet dedicated to her, Meryl Sheep on Sesame Street, (laughs) an honor that I consider to be greater than an Oscar or a Golden Globe uh, any day. And uh, it's been a fun hour talking about her career and revisiting her films over the past week or so, uh, catching up for for this podcast. And there's so many films we didn't even get to touch on. Uh, You know, Into the Woods is a recent one that I really enjoyed where she got to be very theatrical and over the top in an appropriate setting uh, as the witch in that film. Uh, It's not necessarily the definitive version of that musical, but it's not a bad adaptation of a of a, of a Broadway show and uh, and uh, there's certainly lots of other recent films Suffragette we didn't get into and some other other things but it's been a lot of fun to look at some of these highlights and a few lowlights of her career yeah absolutely well thanks for listening to this edition of Lends Me Your Ears uh, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and you can reach us at Lends Me Your Ears on Twitter also on Facebook and uh, take a look at our Patreon page and maybe throw a few coins our way if you're uh, feeling supportive and, uh, of course, you can always email us at lensmeyoureers at gmail.com. Uh, my name's Stephen Cook, and you can reach me on Twitter at at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. And I'm Karsten Knox, and I'm on Twitter at Karsten Knox. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.